You're listening to A Conversation on Modern Measures of Learning, a podcast that inspires educators to explore the paradigm shift in instructional, assessment, and grading practices. My name is Eric Patnodes, and I'm sitting down with educators to talk about their process, their lessons they've learned, and how to use failure as the seed to growth and success. So welcome to another conversation on Modern Measures of Learning podcast. Uh, Our guest today is someone that I recently had the pleasure of meeting face-to-face. You know how there's those uh, people that you know on Twitter and they're your Twitter friends, but then you meet them face-to-face and it's this great experience. Uh, That was the case with our guest a few weeks ago for me. Uh, We had a lot of really thought-provoking conversations and and today we're going to aim to recapture uh, some of the energy from uh, that discussion. And uh, if you will... Uh, Rick, please introduce yourself. Rick Rowe. Hi, Eric. Yeah, it was it was great to connect with you. Um, I'm Rick Rowe. I'm a high school math educator. This is my 20th year teaching high school mathematics. And my huge focus is becoming more of a facilitator of learning, helping kids to learn, figuring out where they're coming from, and then guiding the discussion, making the learning as personalized as possible. So that's sort of my, that's my thread over the past 20 years and how it's evolved. Great. And, and you know, along the lines of, of getting to know you a little better uh, before we jump in, uh, what are uh, you know? What are some some recent books that you're reading? What what are you know some topics that you're really passionate about? Well, reading is something I I, I do a lot of, and I record everything that I'm reading, and I I put it out there on social media. I put it out there on Twitter, and I guess a couple of the big books that have really taken me by storm is Make It Stick, which has really helped me to understand how the brain works and how learning can benefit from it using pieces like interleaving where you weave together part A, part B, part C, part D, and then go back to part A, part B, rather than doing all of A first and all of B. So I have have found incredible learning change by interleaving and secondarily by incorporating this exit ticket either every day or every other day of two maybe four questions of what has recently transpired eric and what the learners are are able to demonstrate in again two to four questions and and those exit tickets sometimes are paper form and sometimes they're a google form but it's a quick formative assessment a quick way of identifying where students are at. And that, I think, has opened up the door for us to start providing feedback, immediate feedback to the kids. And moving from feedback, I'm finding, thanks to Brene Brown's book on Daring Greatly and Dare to Lead, she speaks so much about being vulnerable. And I really think, and this is my first year in 20 years teaching, that I have learned that the more vulnerable and open we are, I think the more we learn. So I'm trying to encourage our learners to be open, to be vulnerable, to ask the questions 
and I, I, we're no longer hearing, well, this is probably wrong, but they, they just put themselves out there either verbally or they go to the board and write something. And I think there's less and less anxiety and fear now that we're trying to help them to become more open and vulnerable and willing to learn. So Make It Stick, Daring Greatly, those are two huge books that have, I think, helped me to facilitate the learning better and to have these learners sort of take on a new kind of learning. You know, reading is one of those things that I think we all aspire to do on a more regular basis and then life happens and and it can be hard to do. What does that process look like for you? Do you try to schedule in some time to read, you know, maybe a chapter at a time? Do you sit down and read for like an hour or two? Uh, Tell me a little more about that. I, I try to read every Friday afternoon. I try to read every Saturday afternoon. I try to read every Sunday evening. My my Monday through, I should say my Sunday night through Thursday is always somewhat geared to preparing a slightly different lesson for the next day based upon the exit ticket results that I got from the prior day. So at the end of the week when I'm just spent, it's my time to read and find find that imagination, find that freedom to just get out there, get into some author's head. So I would say Friday afternoon, Friday evening is a big reading time. Saturday, middle of the afternoon, early afternoon, sit down in the beanbag chair, sit in the sun and just sit there and read. I would say 90% of the time I'm reading using my Kindle on my iPad, though there are a few paperback books that I pick up that copy. But I I do schedule time, Eric, every Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And if I have some time midweek, I might grab another hour or so. But to just sit in a comfortable place, well-lit, and just sort of get lost in the imagination where the author is taking me. Yeah, that's that's something uh, a lot of the other guests have mentioned is, you know, how important it is to schedule that time um, because it, it the time does get away from us because, you know, you're either lesson planning or grading or, uh, you know, you have family or, you know, taking kids to practice or making dinner or whatever it might be. Uh, it's easy to, to lose that hour or two here and there. And I, th- I think you bring up a good point. There's a lot of ways to read, right? iPad, Kindle, actual paperback books. Um, lots of options out there. So thanks for sharing that. Um, what about a, do you have a, a passion project that you're working on right now? Something, it could be education related. It could be something that's just, you know, interest to you personally. A, a passion project, I, I guess maybe it has several different facets. It comes back to vulnerability. I am trying to become more and more vulnerable because I think the more, I become vulnerable the more I know myself and the more open I am and the more opportunities I have to learn. I've only been married a year and a half and the more I try to become vulnerable, the better I think my wife knows me and the more I can adapt to her and adapt to learners. And as Brene Brown says, dare greatly and dare to lead, it is tough There are many times when we don't want to be vulnerable because who knows what somebody's going to say? Who knows what we're going to trip on? Who knows if we're going to do something wrong? But 
I really think a good teacher modeling making mistakes and trying something is is really healthy. So being more vulnerable is a passion of mine. Finding more ways to exchange feedback. I, I feel like I am the bottleneck in our classroom because there's so much material that's coming in. There's so much learning that's coming in and I need to get it all back to the learners. So I, I feel like there's got to be a better way technology-wise, electronically, that I can get what the students are understanding and then get it back to them. So I'm, I'm looking at creating mobile apps. I'm looking at creating uh, a database where I can house the behaviors of students and some of their goals to see if I can create a better learning environment for me. So I, I don't know if, if that answers your question directly. It does. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, like you said, you're finding ways to make yourself more vulnerable and how that's impacting you in many aspects of your life. What would you say is a way that you're trying to teach your students to be more vulnerable? Um, I think it's something that's hard for educators or adults to do. And it, I'm not sure. Is it, Do you think it's harder for students to make themselves vulnerable? I, I, I do. I think... If, you, if a student has been in a learning environment where making a mistake or failing or having some error in thinking is frowned upon or that's wrong, I, I do think that someone learning can be reluctant. However, if, if we create an environment where Learning is just a matter of getting better and getting up again, getting back up on that bike, getting back up on the snowboard, going back up to the board and trying something to get better in a safe learning environment where there's no need to be fearful in being wrong. Um, Eric, we have these cups on our students' desks and they are red, meaning I am clueless. I have no idea what's going on. Yellow is I'm sort of with you, but can you slow down because it's not really working for me totally? Green says, keep going. I'm with you. I got this. And the blue cup is sky's the limit. The blue cup says, yes, I've got this, and I could actually teach somebody else how to do it. So when we're working through something in class, and I say, guys, update the color of the cup on your desk because they're stacked, whoever has a red cup out, Eric, they're telling me I, I, I'm not getting this. I'm I'm not in a good place, and I I really am lost. I will often ask the kid with the red cup if they're willing to come to the board and just scribe for us. We will offer them. We will talk to them. We'll collaborate, but we just want them to be the scribe. And Eric, I found that once they come up and they just start writing, what we give them. At some point, they just start writing what's going on in their head as we stop offering them results, and now it's coming from them. And so many kids have sat down after that and said, wow, I had no idea what I was doing, but because you put me on the spot and put me up there to write, it actually encouraged me slash forced me, however you want to think of it, to actually get more focused 
and it turns them around and it gets them more engaged. And I think that's a huge thing for kids to be willing to go up. We will help you. We will guide you. We'll prompt you. And then at some point, it begins to make sense to them, and they're writing it before we even offer it to them. And I love to see when that happens. Yeah, what an amazing culture you've created in the classroom. Um, one thing that I, I always find um, puzzling slash interesting is that kids today obviously play lots of video games. And when they you know, they're, they're playing a game and, and their character, they, they die or they run out of energy or, you know, the game is over. They just hit start and they, they go again, right. Over and over and over until they figure it out. Failing is, is not an issue when it comes to video games. That's the way that they get better. Eric, I totally agree. And when they're playing a video game or, a, you know, any kind of a where they move from one level to the next level to the next level. It could even be a card game or something. If they make a mistake or they lose or their, their person gets killed, nobody laughs at them. Nobody's there pointing out the fact there is no fear. There's no audience. Whereas when you're in a classroom and you offer something that's not correct and somebody says that's wrong, there's that vulnerability. There's that, oh my gosh, what's people, what are people going to say? You really have to create a safe culture. You have to create a safe environment where it's okay to offer something that's not right. And I really think we, should, we can change our vocabulary. I've had many kids offer something that's not right. And I'll say, okay, so what do you mean by that? I'm not telling them it's wrong. I'm saying, okay, how'd you get it? And then they begin to explain it. And they say, oh, wait a minute. No, it's not for, it's negative for. And I say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? How do you figure it out? And they talk themselves through it. Whereas if I had said, no, that's wrong, and let me call on somebody else, I, th I think there's that fear that we're adding to. So I, I really think the way that we facilitate this learning that's going on, I, I think we have to be more encouraging, foster more risk Taking, I mean, I had a young man last year said, Mr. O, we have to take more risks in this class. And I thought, oh my gosh, what a concept for a ninth grade math student to say, Mr. O, we have to take more risks. <laughs> Just out of the blue, Eric, he said that. So I, I do think that the kids are willing as long as the culture is safe and they're not going to be harmed by it, embarrassed by it, whatever the case may be. So then how do you get, if we back up a few steps, say the beginning of the school year, because you're right, that's not necessarily the culture um, school-wide or district-wide. Um, maybe they didn't come from a, years of educational experience where it was okay, uh, that culture didn't exist, for example. Uh, where does that how, do, how does that start? What does that look like? What's the first week of your school year look like? Well, I've, I've, I've engaged a lot with uh, Twitter chat. Um, the hashtag is cold chat, and it's a culture of learning. And the first couple of weeks, at least, sometimes the first three weeks, is about, it's about building a safe environment, building a, building a classroom environment where everyone is willing to listen to everybody else everyone is willing to work with someone else everyone is willing to offer each other 
many accommodations and and you trust each other so much that if somebody makes if somebody says something that you don't agree with to ask them a question ask them okay so help me understand how you got that versus well that's not what i got so there's this communication there's this i don't want to say it's vocabulary error but there's a way of speaking to each other there's a way of working with one another i want them to talk to each other i want them to work things through I want everyone in the classroom to be able to ask anybody else in the classroom any question that keeps this learning going on. And if you if they see somebody sitting there with a red cup, anybody has the opportunity to go over and say, okay, how can I help you? Creating that kind of environment does take time. It does. And you can't jump into chapter one on the second day of school and, and start you know, flipping through a textbook or, or going through a curriculum. You really need to take time to, to create that. This is a different kind of classroom, and this is a, an environment where we're going to try to be as respectful as we can and, and also be vulnerable enough to say, Mr. O, I hate fractions. Mr. O, I hate negatives. I just don't understand them. Um, I hate word problems. Okay, why do you think that? So we put some post-its on the wall of some fears and we try to incorporate them by slipping them in gradually whenever we can to help them to sort of hedge those fears. It, it takes a culture, it takes a trust, a respect and a, a willingness that, hey, if I get this wrong, I'll try it again. If I get that wrong, I'm going to try it again because I've got a support support system around me. I think it not only applies to students, but also for teachers. That's hard to say, Eric. That's hard for an educator to say. Totally. And if we can't say it, why, why would the kids say it, right? Why would our kids say that if if they're not seeing us model it? And I don't know of too many educators who in a PD session have said, wait a minute, wait, can you back up? I, I, I'm not getting this at all. Because that PD session hasn't probably created a culture yet because it's just, what, a two-hour workshop or something. That they didn't create a culture. They've given us an agenda. This is the outline. This is what we're going through. We often don't know several of the people there. So do we actually dare say, wait a minute, I, I, I'm totally lost here. I don't even know what page we're on, what slide we're on. That's not something that many educators or adults are comfortable saying yet. Right. And so much learning can take place when we can model it for them and kids can learn to be able to say, wait, 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 I'm not getting this at all. Can, can, can somebody help me with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that culture uh, is huge in the classroom. And I think even more impactful at a, a building or a district level uh, where everyone's modeling, right? Not just teachers for students, but also, you know, the leaders of the school, the instructional coaches, those kinds of folks, uh, you get them modeling that same way. It's very, very impactful. Absolutely. And it's even in the in a hallway. I, I find myself many times when, like during my prep period, if I'm walking through the hallway and I see a kid that I don't even know, and I say hi, and they, they inadvertently smile and say hi, and sometimes they'll say, can I ask you a question? And I say, absolutely. I hope I can answer it for you. And they say, well, I'm looking for such and such, or do you know where so-and-so's room is? 
I think we need to create that kind of a school where it's always appropriate to ask. And, and, and I, I don't know how that's going to happen in a village unless everybody is willing to create that environment where it's always healthy to ask. And it's not about giving out bonus points every time you ask a question because that, that's not what it's about. But it's creating that, that willingness to ask when you don't know something. I, I totally agree. Um, so let's, let's shift gears just a bit because so much of what we're talking about is uh, related to um, standards-based learning. And I know you've been uh, a moderator of the standards-based learning chat. Um, tell us a little bit about the chat, and then we'll get back into the vulnerability, the asking questions, the culture, and how it relates to a standards-based learning classroom. So the standards-based learning chat, or SBL chat, Garnett, Katie, and I moderate that, co-moderate that a couple times a month. It's on a Wednesday night. And it's a, it's a, to me, it's a fabulous environment to be in where everything is centered around learning and growing and asking questions and basing it upon a specific learning target. It's not just a favorite transparency or a favorite uh, game or a favorite something that a teacher wants to do, but everything is actually tied to a specific standard or learning target. And that chat, every time we collaborate, focuses on how do we create a learning environment that is conducive to just sort of heightened learning where the kids are engaged, the facilitator or the teacher is engaged, and everything is driven to help the learners gain a much, much better understanding such that they can communicate it well to others. And I have learned so much co-moderating that chat and connecting with other educators. I think it even may have been through that chat that Eric, you and I met. I think you might be right, yeah. There are so many people that we can learn from and engage with, ask questions of that we haven't met yet. I do anticipate the opportunity to meet many people that I haven't yet met through, th that I have conversed with through SBL chat, but haven't met in person. And when you do finally meet those people, like when you and I met recently, you, you feel like you know the person and you pick up from your last conversation. And I really think that that chat, it's one of the only chats that I regularly engage in, but it's, it's that chat that I find such a group of dedicated, consistent educators that really are passionate about learning and passionate about helping education to sort of go to that next step. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with helping. One thing that uh, I think gets overlooked with Twitter sometimes is that um, no matter where you are with your teaching, with your own personal learning, whatever it might be, there's somebody out there who was in that place also at one time. And uh, I've never met an educator in, in person, uh, online, wherever it might be, that isn't willing to help. And so if you think about the fact that there's somebody out there who is already doing what I'm currently doing and 
making yourself vulnerable to go back to the idea. If I make myself vulnerable and I'm willing to ask a question in this huge network of educators on Twitter, there's going to be several people who want to help you out because they know what it's like to be where you are right now. Absolutely. And even though Garnett and Katie and I lead this chat or at least facilitate the questions and help people to collaborate, I learn so much every time that chat kicks in. I learn so much. I engage with other people. We answer each other's questions. There's always takeaways that I have from that environment. And it's the same thing in my classroom, Eric. I, I really think I learn more from the students and about the students every day about their learning styles, what, they, what they're still fearful of, what their vulnerabilities are, what they just haven't conquered yet. I'm trying to figure out those every day with them. And I think I learn so much about them every day. I think they even, I may even learn more from them than they learn from me, even though I wish it was the other way around. No, I, I can relate to that. Um, I, I remember feeling that way, not only working with students, but sometimes also working with teachers um, in like a professional development capacity, walking away thinking, wow, I really learned a lot from you guys. I hope, I hope you learned as much from me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's that vulnerability piece again there, Eric, see? There's that you have a willingness to to be open and to take in anything that's out there. Even if you're presenting something, you may be bombarded with some questions from your target audience, and now you're going to learn and grow because of some questions that they asked you. But we have to be open to that. And I think when we're open, a, a much better culture is built. Well, let me say uh, really quick, Rick, uh, just for everyone who's listening, as always, I will be sure to um, put links to the books that Rick has mentioned. I'll put a link to the SBL chat and the uh, date and time that they meet. So don't worry about, uh, you know, scrambling to write things down. Uh, All of that information will be in the show notes. Um, So next question uh, that I want to get to. Uh, in regards of, oh, there's my family getting home from school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Life uh, never slows down. So in in regards to standards-based learning, what was the the tipping point for you, right? Like Mm. whenever, you know, we all graduate from college as new educators. And I feel like for the most part, uh, you know, we were students for however many years in this kind of traditional model of education, most of us were, I should say. And then for a lot of us, we go through our teacher preparation programs. And and a lot of times it's, you know, a very traditional uh, type of learning experience. And we learn uh, to do things oftentimes the way that we've done them ourselves. And so we all kind of enter the classroom as first year teachers. And it's, very natural for us to take this kind of traditional approach. And then the more and more you teach, you are introduced to other ways, other instructional strategies, other assessment strategies, and you start to evolve your practice over time. So when did that happen for you in regards to standards-based learning? Wow. Well, I was, I was a software engineer for years before I had the opportunity to become an educator. And when I did become an educator, I was green. I didn't know that I could do this education thing. I didn't know if I could actually facilitate learning for students. And 
But as I was learning that textbooks were coming and going, schools were changing for me, teachers were coming and going, and there wasn't a there wasn't a nucleus, there wasn't a kernel of concepts that I was being able to find for the course that I was teaching. They'd give us a curriculum and sometimes it would be based upon a textbook and then we would change the textbook or we'd get a new version. And all of that was going on and I was being offered to teach different classes and then I'd have to start all over again with another course. And about around that time, I came across SBG Chat, which is standards-based grading at the time. And since we've changed to, we've renamed it to SBL because it's actually more about the learning than it is the grading. But it was around that time and, and I jumped into the chat as a participant and I was listening to all this and I was thinking, wait a minute, if, if we build or develop a course based upon specific learning targets, a student could move from your school district to my school district and still pick right up and know exactly what's going on. It doesn't matter what, what state you're in. It doesn't matter what town you're in. Algebra one is algebra one. Physics is physics. Chemistry is chemistry. And therefore, I was, I was struggling with, wait a minute, if a specific course were built upon fundamental concepts that everyone who taught that course around the world agreed upon, that would make so much more sense once we agreed, this is what algebra is, this is what chemistry is, this is what biology is. And when I was grappling with that and this SBG chat that, again, later became SBL chat, I was, I was traversing from moving from a textbook and then moving to actual standards. And then the Common Core State Standards came out, and it wasn't long after that, Eric, that I said, wait a minute, this course that I'm teaching has, let's say, 40 different standards. We, we finally boiled them down to, like, let's say, 20 power standards. These 20 standards are the most crucial. If students at the end of the course leave with a really proficient or mastery level understanding on these 20 standards, then they have a really rock solid experience with this course. So that's kind of how it evolved. How's that transitioning with you? That's, that's a great place to start. Um, so you were turned on to the SBG, now SBL chat, and it sounds like it started opening your eyes to maybe some different ways of doing things. And, and what I'm hearing is that once that happened for you, you kind of started testing the waters, if you will, in your own classroom. I did. And I was, I was engaging with so many people online and I was asking so many questions. I asked some questions, you know, two or three or four times until I actually was making sense with it. And then I started reading a lot about it and, and bombarding different people on Twitter with questions about it until I realized that. I've got these 20 standards and I, I went to the department that I was, the math department that I was working at and I said, so what I'm understanding online is that these are the, let's say 20 or so standards that this course is built around. So our colleagues actually, we got together and we sequenced those 20 standards and we connected them almost like in a, 
you know, in a 14, uh, a four by five, you know, blocks and put them all together into pieces to say, where do we start? And then what's connected to that? And what's the next standard that actually leverages the prior two? And we built from a core out, we built what those 20 standards were in a sequence, in a relatedness where once you've got the first two pieces, then you can even you can add in a third because it leverages the first and second. And it wasn't until I started doing that that the learning was going so much more smoothly because once they've got the first three pieces, adding the fourth that leverages the first, second, and third, you can almost move right from one standard into another almost without the learners knowing something is, something is new because everything is so related. So once we got those power standards and we sequenced them and we connected them in such a way that the students could see the relatedness between it, that's when the learning really started taking off, for, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if we back up a second to just in, you know, generally speaking about standards-based learning, um, you mentioned this kind of like sequence from one standard into the next. What are some of the advantages or disadvantages, however you want to approach it, um, from, you know, your, your traditional uh, grades, averages, point-based approach compared to standards-based? I think, I think for me, Eric, now that I've been with it for such a long period of time and I've had so many students transition from another school district into ours. And the first thing I look at is, okay, what have you done in your other district? What are you good at? What are you working on? What are you not yet proficient on? And not once have I ever received from another school district, which pieces have these students proven that they understand and what pieces are they struggling with? So one, when I when I want to know where a kid at is and what they're good at and what they have yet to become good at, everything ties to a standard. And if we have, again, if we have 20 standards that really make up the crux of a course, I believe it's beneficial to know where we are with each of those standards per kid so that we can move them through Eric, it's no longer about, you know, homework one or quiz one or, you know, page 80. None of that actually means anything. Is, is the, the standard is, can they graph a line? And these are several ways that they can prove that they can. Because page 80, quiz one, homework 13 actually has no bearing. It really doesn't mean anything. So a kid never comes up to me and says, I, I need to redo quiz 13. Well, pff, I don't know what quiz 13 is and neither do they. They come up and they tell me, I need to work on graphing linear equations. I need to work on, and they give me something. And that's the, that's the standard we're working on. So everything is tied to a specific concept, a specific learning target. It's one of the 20 power standards that, again, we have sequenced. One thing that I was always concerned about was, so let's say I was teaching fifth grade fractions. And uh, we get to the end of the unit and, you know, X number of kids got an A, another number of kids got a B, some got a C, some got a D, whatever it may, whatever it may be. Uh, and then we move on to the next concept, whether some of them got it or not. And 
And that was always concerning to me because then, well, if you don't get it in my class, you're going to go to sixth grade and you didn't get it. So now how do you continue to, to move on to the next logical uh, step of, of math uh, that you need to be learning? What is it? I mean, that obviously has to be different in a standards-based classroom. Everything that we engage in has tagged to it, what is this learning target? And it's either on the goal on the top of the paper, it's the goal in the Google form that we're doing, it states right there, what is this target that we're working, we're working toward? I, I sometimes will ask the learners at the outset, where are you now? And it's, it's always sort of, a, it's always a color. Red, I'm clueless. Yellow, um, I should say red is I'm, I'm, I'm beginning. Yellow is I'm approaching proficiency. I'm approaching understanding. Green, using a traffic light. Keep going. I'm with you. I understand this. And blue is either mastery or exemplary, or I can actually teach this to somebody else. So sometimes at the top, I will say, where are you now? And for anybody who checks off that blue, I ask them to come up to me right away because if I'm offering a learning opportunity and they're already blue at it, then I, I feel like I'm wasting their time. I want to give them some enrichment or I want them to move on to the next standard. So I, I don't, I'm not consistent about always asking them at the outset where they are, but at the end, I ask them to evaluate, okay, so before you actually review this or check your answers, if you will, where are you now? And oftentimes when they give themselves a color, it's pretty aligned with that same color that I attach to it once we sort of collaborate together and check the answers together and see what, what's right and what's not right. So they know where they're at. They know what they need work on. And, and I think aligning everything we do to a specific standard is key, except at the end, we can't average them together. Because if you're great at, at 18 things and you haven't even started two things and then you average those 20 things together, again, you've got a meaningless grade at the end because you don't know what that student hasn't yet learned or hasn't demonstrated proficiency in. So I, I, I believe that we need to keep separate each of the standards so that the next teacher and the student and the parents and a tutor, whomever it is, knows what they need to work on and what they've already demonstrated proficiency with. Mm -hmm. When it comes to averages, um, one of my favorite analogies, it could be riding a bike, it could be swimming, whatever the case may be. Uh, if, we're, if we're talking about swimming, for example, and uh, a student you know, is trying to learn how to swim and inevitably they're going to fail in the beginning and they'll get, they'll get a little bit over, they'll get better over time. Um, but it's going to take several tries before they master the skill of swimming. So if I tried uh, 10 times in the first nine times, I just didn't really get it, uh, but I got it on the 10th try, what would my average be? I mean, it would be, you know, one out of 10, I would get 10%. Um, but ultimately I learned how to swim. I mastered that skill or that, that concept. And so that, that's another thing that's always kind of bugged me. It sounds like standards-based learning addresses. I think it does, Eric, because we don't record it in a grade book, but I often will track their formative progress. And again, going back to, you know, graphing, they might have 
10 attempts, 12 attempts at something, and I might be recording their colors. They might go from red to another red, to a yellow, to a green, back to a yellow, to another green. And, and I'm tracking those, those colors of this one through four scale. And the very last or the most recent demonstration is what we consider is their current understanding of it. If the, the latest or most recent was on a tough day, and they dipped from a, a red up to a yellow, up to a green, and then back to a yellow or a red again, then their latest demonstration could still be yellow or red, but they always have another opportunity to redo it, to get some more extra practice, and to try it again. And there's never late learning in our class. I mean, even when the end of the quarter comes, and tomorrow is the last day before mid-year exams. So even if it takes a couple of days into the new marking period, um, it's not something that we generally want to do for every single student. But if, if somebody just needs a few more days, I, I really believe that, let's say, a summative assessment happens on a Friday and somebody, they get it back and they say, oh my gosh, now I understand what my mistakes are. And then they could do some more practice, have a conversation about it, and then re-demonstrate that learning to flawless mastery, I, I see no reason to average those original faulty attempts, though expected to be good. It wasn't until they were assessed over and over that they said, oh, now I see what I've got going on. And then they come through and they say, virtually, I can promise you this is flawless. You don't even have to look at it. I know I've got it because I found out what I was doing wrong and I corrected it and I actually checked on my work. And sure enough, it's right. So Eric, it would be crazy for us to average some final mastery of something with some initial attempts when they actually didn't know how to do it yet. And I think it gives them a willingness to keep striving and keep pushing for a higher and higher level of understanding as long as we continue to give them more opportunities for practice, more feedback, and, and sort of build in them as much or foster in them as much perseverance as we can rather than say, well, it's, it's got to be by Friday and whatever you don't get but done by Friday. Life's not like that, really. I mean, and, unless it's the, the time that you have to be at a gate to catch a flight, you can always catch the next flight if you have to. <laughs> right. And, and I can see what you're saying in that it really takes away a lot of the pressure if the students know, you, you know, it's almost like, okay, I'm expected to fail the first couple of times I do this. And that's okay. And then the only thing that really matters is that eventually I can prove that I understand how to do X, whatever the case may be. I can remember so many times getting back something and I'd say, you know, I'd talk to somebody about it and I'd say, oh, you've got to be kidding. Oh, that's what I was supposed to do. Now I've got it. And then, of course, I would go up and I would ask my teacher and they'd say, no, that, you know, that was chapter three. We're in chapter four now. And I said, but now I understand it. <laughs> and I, and I, it is. It, it's too late, but it should never be too late to learn something. One of my uh, favorite ways to think about this is that um, too many times in education, 
we use uh, test scores or data about students as the autopsy of learning. So instead of doing assessment for learning, we're doing assessment of learning. And, and the learning opportunity has passed. I'm sorry you didn't understand it, uh, but we're moving on. And we're, but we're not sorry, Eric, I don't think, because if we were sorry, I think we would give them the opportunity to let them prove what they know. Let's say before the podcast, I wasn't sure, but now uh, I agree. Where do I start? Yeah, leverage, leverage your colleagues, leverage people online, find somebody in a different district who's also teaching that course and open up a, a shared Google Doc with them. Find somebody who teaches the same thing that you do and, and collaborate on what are, the, what are the most important pieces and what order have you put these in and why have you put them in. And, and I, I really believe that you will find synergy and you will find momentum and you will make an, you'll build an incredible network of people that you haven't even met yet but yet they're teaching the same subject you are. Yep, and, and to tie it all together uh, or bring it together at the end, um, that starts with being vulnerable. Eric, I, I, I really think it does. It, 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 sh it should be, I, I think the more, the more educators are willing to ask for questions, to ask for help, I, I went into teaching thinking that the teacher in the room sort of knew everything and just guided everything along and told students what to do and how to do it. Man, have I learned differently. I, I now present what, where, you know, where we're going and I'm asking students how they want to approach it and what do they know about it. And let's look at these four pieces. Which one is related to which one? Which two can you compare? Which two can you contrast? So they're able to actually talk about it and participate in something that is just brand new. It's, you know, just rounding a corner and they're willing to talk about it because that momentum and that vulnerability and that it's okay to put something out there. If nobody agrees with you, that's okay, but you actually see it that way and nobody else has seen it yet. Maybe they will come around to seeing it in a different way. Absolutely love it, Rick. Um, so before we go, um, we're, we're running right around an hour and I want to be respectful of your time. So there's two last questions I like to kind of wrap the show up with. And uh, the first one is, if, if you could get rid of one education buzzword, because you, you and I both know there's a lot of them out there. Um, if there's one education buzzword that you could get rid of, what would it be and why? Well, I'm going to take the liberty and go with two of them, Eric. <laughs> um, I, I would get rid of homework. Um, I have not assigned required graded homework in probably five years. And I think our students do incredibly well. And they practice outside of class if they want it. If they don't, they play an instrument, they play a sport, they talk with their family, they, but they're not going home and doing a required 20 problems based upon what we did today. Because if they didn't learn it today, they can't go home and do 20. And if they did learn it today, there's no sense in going home and doing 20 more. So the first thing I would get rid of is, is homework and, and grading it and recording it and all that because it's just practice. And I don't think practice should ever be graded the other piece I'd really like to get rid of 
is either the word test or zeros associated with learning. I know when, when I know that I have a test or my students have a test, I think there is that fear that is already there. So everything we just assess, we always assess. There is no quizzing, there's no pub quizzing, there's no test. It's always an assessment. And in most case, every assessment can be reassessed or, or, or perfected in a better way. So I, I try to get rid of, the, rid of the word test. My kids never hear me say anything about, and they don't even say, when are we having a test? You know, they say, you know, when is the unit going to end or something? So I, I do think the word test or quiz has a, a fear and negative connotation. So I try to get rid of that word. But zeros, I think, really hurt kids. And I, 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 I equate a zero with either a lazy teacher or a lazy student. And I was guilty of that when I, years and years and years ago, when a student didn't do something, I just easily simply put in that zero. And I have since learned through standards-based learning that a zero for that standard actually doesn't mean that they don't know anything about it. They haven't even had the chance to demonstrate it. They haven't even tried it. I haven't encouraged them. I haven't pushed them to do it. I just took the lazy way out, Eric, and I just put in that zero because they didn't care for it. They didn't attempt it. They were absent. They were on a field trip, whatever the case may be. So I, I think that zeros really need to go away. And I would rather say we don't have any evidence yet for them to be able to graph. We're working on graphing and I don't have any evidence yet. I, I can't put a zero in until the very last day of the marking period when grades are done. That's when I have to put it in unless they come to me two or three days later and say, you know, now I got it. Okay, then I'll, then I'll go back and change the report card and we'll print a new report card for you. But I would really like to get rid of unnecessary, pointless homework and I'd like to get rid of zeros, Eric. That being said, uh, the last question I want to ask you is one of my favorites uh, to ask guests on the show is that if there was one tweet that you could post, and, and maybe this is related to the last question in a way, but if there was one tweet that you could post that every educator would see, what would it say? Oh, that's a tough one because I think, yeah, Eric, I think it has to be I think learning, I think learning is incredibly fragile. I think learning is iterative. I think there's so much that learning just takes time. It's sort of like that Orlean song, love takes time. It takes time. So there's got to be empathy. There's got to be iterations. There's got to be more and more and more chances to get it. There's got to be vulnerability on all people's parts. So I, I, I don't know yet, Eric, that I could come up with that ultimate tweet, but there's something to do with empathy. There's something to do with vulnerability. Uh, more chances. You, if you don't pay your electric bill, they don't say, "Well, forget it. You don't have to pay it." They're gonna, they're gonna give you many more chances to pay it. So, but I also think that feedback has got to be in there. So I, somehow it's a combination of empathy, vulnerability, feedback, more iterations, because all of those pieces actually create learning. I learned how to ride a bike, you know, however long it took me because I got feedback. I kept getting back up. I brushed off my knees and I got back on the bike. 
there are so many parts of that. And my, you know, my dad wouldn't give up when I said, okay, I'm done. I can't do this. He'd say, come on, come on. I'll hold the back of the seat. And maybe I was in tears going down the street because I got hurt from the last time I fell off. But he insisted that he wanted me to learn that skill and he wasn't going to give up even when I gave up. And, um, Eric, just to close, I've heard several kids say to me, and I've actually tweeted out some of them, Mr. O, thank you for not giving up on me when I had already given up on myself. So there's that empathy. There's where the kid says, I don't have the confidence. I just can't do this. And I say, yes, you can. And I'm going to stay here with you as we get this together. So I don't have an answer for your tweet necessarily, but it's somehow those pieces woven together, Eric. All right. Well, I'll, we'll work on this. We'll, we'll condense it down into 280 <laughs> characters and we'll get it out there in the Twitter sphere. Okay. Um, well, Rick, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, as always, whenever I hang out with you or follow you on Twitter, I, I learn something new. Um, speaking of Twitter, where are some good places that people can connect with you online? For the listeners, just know um, I will definitely uh, grab the links uh, to whatever Rick mentions, and I'll be sure that those are in the show notes. Okay, well, there's, there's uh, three pieces I'll give you. First is my Twitter handle, at um, RickW. So it's my last name, R-O-W-E, my first name, R-I-K, and my middle initial, W. Um, I have a, a website, a blog spot. It's, uh, it's with um, Google's blogger, which is M-H-S-R-R-O-W-E dot blogspot.com so that that brings you to my blog and there's a link on there to our plan book and all kinds of other resources and my plan book I put out there Eric so that students their parents the kids tutors a prior teacher anybody who's out there can see what are we doing right now what are we working on and everything is linked to that plan book. So the plan book's online. Um, so again, Twitter, the blog, and the plan book. I guess those are the three pieces that I'm out there right now on. And, and don't forget, um, share with us one more time, SBL chat. Oh, yeah, sure. SBL chat is the first and third Wednesdays of each month. Um, it's, it's okay to just jump on Twitter between... And it's uh, 8 Central Time or 9 Eastern Time. The hashtag is SBLChat. And if you just want to sort of hang out and watch that stream of every hashtag that's got SBLChat in it, watch the questions, watch the responses, that's fine. Some people call that lurking, and you just watch all the conversations. But if you just want to put a tweet out there, make sure you include in your tweet the hashtag SBLChat, and then everyone in the chat will actually see it, and you will start people corresponding with you, and you will find such an incredible group of educators that you begin to interact with. And I dare you to become vulnerable, ask them the questions, ask them for clarification, put something out there, show them a, you know, a picture of something and say, can you give me feedback on this? Incredible learning can happen online with people that you haven't yet met, but like you and I, we eventually did meet up. Yep, SPL chat's great. Rick, thanks again for taking the time to share your uh, knowledge and experience with standards-based learning. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you soon on Twitter.
Great. Thanks so much, Eric. This has been a ball. All right, Rick. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the episode. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend or subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, remember if you want to join in the conversation, use the Modern Measures hashtag on Twitter or follow us. You can also find us on Facebook. Till next time, I'm Eric Patnodes, and this has been a conversation on Modern Measures of Learning.